Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I could just sit down now, couldn't I? I mean, there it is. We're looking at restoration. It's the third of these values in Partners in the Harvest. And this is the second of three Sundays when we'll be looking at what restoration of the heart and soul means. And I'd look to look at this in the sense of why the, the reality of what it means to really see restoration, the how, and then a story that I think sums up restoration in a way that almost ought to be in the Bible, if that's not heresy. <laughs> so, the soul. I love what an incredibly wise person said once when they said, your body doesn't have a soul, but your soul has a body. The person that we are is our soul. Yes, God made our body, but our soul is what makes us who we are. We are a soul that lives in a worldly body. And our soul longs for restoration. Our soul yearns to know what it is to be right with God, to walk with him, to journey with him, to be transformed every day from our heart and our soul, from the inside out. If there's one thing we can do, one thing, it's to press into that more and more and know more of the, the restoration that Jesus brings every day. To be reconciled with him, to have a relationship with him. And yet, church, saints, for all of us, there is a big if. So yes, it's all about Jesus. And yet, it starts with me. It starts with you. It starts with us. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. There's quite a few ifs in there and they're quite big ifs and it's so easy to brush over them. But this is the reality. If my people will humble themselves. When was the last time I really humbled myself? When was the last time that any of us made ourselves vulnerable before God, before each other? If I seek his face and if I'm prepared to turn, I've got to be prepared to do something about it. We're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer. It's so easy to just pray 
forgive us our sins, there's a really important next line which we all know. As we forgive those who sinned against us. And there's uh, a translation, there's an interpretation of this that's almost saying, dare I say it, that we're forgiven as much as we're willing to forgive others. There's some big ifs in this. This isn't a one-way street. Lord, restore me, bless me, give me everything I've ever wanted. I, I want, I want, I want. No, Jesus is saying, I long to help you to be from the heart and soul, inwards and outwards, to be all that I made you to be. And there's a part you play in it, which is letting go to be reconciled with him and restored. Jesus is, as, as he said, as he told us, I stand at the door and knock. There's an amazing picture, painting of this, which you can Google really easily, but it's very moving to see the real thing in St. Paul's Cathedral, painted by Holman Hunt, and it's entitled The Light of the World, and it's packed with symbolism. If you're going to go, look up all the symbolism first. Take it with you and see it for yourself. But one of the most profound symbols in this is the door of our heart that's painted in this picture doesn't have a handle on the outside. There's Jesus, light of the world, knocking on the door that he cannot open. Only we can open the doors to our hearts. That's free will. That's the love of Jesus. He created us to be given the opportunity to say, Lord, transform me. I choose to open that door and let you in. I choose for you to change me. I choose to ask for forgiveness. I choose. That's what Jesus longs to do but the first move is with us. So the reality, what's the reality of this look like? I was really struck uh, reading a particular passage from John Altborg's book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. Um, phenomenal book. I'll confess I haven't read a great deal of it yet, maybe because it's too good a book, it's just too challenging. There's too many ifs in there, maybe. But um, this particular bit, I'd, I'd encourage you to take this away and read it again. And he wrote, to sinful patterns of behaviour that never get confronted and changed. Abilities and gifts that never get cultivated and deployed until weeks become months. Months run into years, and one day you're looking back on a life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenchingly honest conversations you never had, great, bold prayers you never prayed, exhilarating risks you never took, sacrificial gifts you never offered, lives you never touched, and you're sitting in your armchair with a shriveled soul, ouch, and forgotten dreams, and you realise there was a world of desperate need, and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than yourself. You see the person you could 
have become, but did not. You never followed your calling. You never got out of the boat. Yes, the reality is, my goodness, it's hard getting out of the boat. Maybe it's the boat of our own lives of if you confess your sins, if we turn from our wicked ways, if I make myself vulnerable, if I have those conversations. Yes, it's hard and we will get it wrong. And I'd almost say that's okay. We know we're really pressing in to wanting to be different if we stumble on the way. Peter, the rock on which I build my church, Jesus said, that this passage is a letter from Peter. Peter stumbled countless times, even when he got out of the boat with enough faith that Jesus could help him walk on water. Even then, he doubted, stumbled and began to sink. But how many other disciples were in the boat, watched a miracle happening, saw their saviour, didn't get out of the boat? Maybe it's a small minority of people that just do it, just step out and accept we're going to need Jesus when we stumble. Let's get out of the boat. Let's go and do something uncomfortable. Let's look for that restoration. Maybe the most uncomfortable thing is allowing Jesus to do that kind of restoration in our lives. It's a tough thing to say I need it and I'm prepared to let you do it. I'm bound to say something today that might even be me stumbling. I may even say something you don't agree with. I might say, I might tell you one of these stories and you find it difficult. Maybe I'm going to stumble today. But there are times when ordinary life is just hard too. Another aspect of the reality of restoration is, Lord, I just don't get it. It's just so hard. Why do you call me to be in this particular place, to live in this particular community, to have neighbours like this, to have friends like that, to work in this place, to live in? It's hard. Why do I have these difficult situations in life? I've maybe suffered tragedy. Lord, I don't get it. But we have to lean on him and trust him and be prepared to let him do that restoration. It's God's way. We don't understand it. And this kind of restoration is not skin deep. It doesn't start from the outside, but it comes from the inside outwards. And it, it might take a long time, but then we mustn't forget the context of eternity. As it says in verse 10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, and the little is in there, will himself restore you and make you strong. So what Peter's telling us is that there will be troubles, there will be tough times for a little while, but there is eternity, there is a forever that our soul knows is much more important than this brief life. The scale of God is really difficult to get our heads around. The scale of the immensity of the universe 
Let's just see if we can begin to get some idea of this scale. Um, it just blew my mind when I read about if you were to take our Earth, which is beyond comprehension of huge, turn it into a grain of sand. So the Earth we're living on, goodness knows how small we are now, but the Earth is now the size of a grain of sand. Uh, there might be a brilliant person in the room now who knows the answer to the next question. What size would the sun be? Anybody want to have a hazard a guess? A football, a pea, did someone say? An apple. An apple. You're getting close. It's a golf ball. The sun is now a golf ball, which isn't very big, but remember we're a grain of sand. That gives you some idea how big the sun is. Now, how far away from the Earth, grain of sand size, is the golf ball sun? Anybody just have a guess in... No, it, uh, ordinarily, but shrink it down to this new scale. It, a, a ruler of football pitch, six metres. It's actually six metres away, so probably if I stood over here, it would be... That's how far the sun is. Now, the sun is a golf ball. Just two more, bear with me. How big is the biggest star in our solar system? Now everything's shrunk down to that scale. The biggest star in our solar system? Size of? It's now, it's actually 39 metres in diameter. Can you imagine, compared to a golf ball, this is our God, this is, and last ridiculous statistic, just our galaxy, our galaxy, now we've got a, a a grain of sand, six metres away, a golf ball. How wide is the galaxy, which is one of millions, if not billions, of galaxies in the universe? How wide is the galaxy, the our solar system, the Milky Way galaxy? Anybody want to have a guess? 100 metres, 1,000 miles. It's 46 million miles across. When the Earth's a grain of sand... This is how great our God is. This is the scale of what we're, we're dealing with. So, how? Verse 6 tells us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift us up. This is costly. This is tough. Nobody, very few people really want to humble themselves to be restored. For relationships to go deep, for God's costly, beyond the comprehension of costly grace to transform us, it's not a cheap thing, it's a tough thing to be willing to humble ourselves. And the key to this is about letting go. Verse 7 talks about cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Or in the Passion Translation, pour out all your worries and stress upon him and leave them there for he always tenderly cares for you. There's a story, um, I don't know how true it is, but if you want to catch a monkey, there's a very simple way to do it. What you do is you take a jar 
and you put some wonderful treats in it, the neck of the jar is just the width of a monkey's hand at the widest point. So it can just get its hand in to take the treats. And then you tie this jar rigidly to a tree. Uh, the, the story goes, I'm not saying this is science, that what the monkey will do is sniff out the treats, put its hand in the jar, grab the treats, and then because it's holding the treats, it cannot get its hand out of the jar. And all you now need to do is calmly approach the monkey because the monkey will not let go of the treats. You've got a monkey anchored in a jar. And you've got a monkey. I don't know if anybody wants a monkey, but that's <laughs> what you do. Um, but the point is, cast off. We so often hang on to these things that hold us back. I'm guilty of it. Hanging on to worries and anxieties. Yes, I know you can do all sorts of amazing things, Lord, but um, surely this one's down to me. You know, I, I, I could, I really want to do, or I... I just got to hang. Why do we hang on to these things? Why? Uh, Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us, you help us to let go of these things that hold us in the jar in such a way that the devil, the prowling lion, can devour us with worry and anxiety that doesn't belong in our lives. Help us to let go, Lord, of these things. Verse 8 talks about um, this devil that prowls around. Um, the key to this is making yourself vulnerable isn't about going it alone. God gave us the church as a group of people to journey with, to lean on, to support, to be in it together. And making ourselves vulnerable is about making ourselves vulnerable with each other in a safe place, in the way that we can support and help each other. The, the prowling lion is, is just like the analogy in the wild. The vulnerable one is the, the weak, the lame, on the edge or separated from the herd. Stay inside the herd. Restoration of heart and soul takes place in, a, in the context of the family of God where we can all help each other. Yes, the relationship and transformation comes from God, but the support structure comes from each other too. I had an incredible experience when suggesting I'd volunteer at a school close to where I work. This is Ark All Saints Academy. It's a tough, tough neighbourhood in London. This is a, a borough that knew the riots in full force a few years ago. Um, the head talks about galloping past the, the gates to the school were mounted police officers charging rioters. Just next door in the local uh, estate, just in the last few weeks, a young 18-year-old was stabbed to death. This is a tough, tough place. But this is like this. It's a Church of England school. It's a faith school that overtly proclaims the gospel where the head and the teaching staff are Christians. 
modelling what it is to be the disciples of Christ. What they need is people at the end of the school day that can just stand at the bus stop, stand at the corner of the street, visibly in high-vis being a presence to help the pupils feel safer and get on the bus with less likelihood that they're going to be stabbed or hurt. And so she was walking us around the school just giving us a flavour of what it's like. we walking along and she walks up to an 11-year-old boy um, and she just asks him. The first thing she did, though, was she said, Sir. She addressed one of her 11-year-old pupils as Sir. And I asked her afterwards, she said, Every boy in this school is a Sir. And every girl in this school is a Madam. That's not reserved for us as teaching staff. That's restoration for those children coming from troubled backgrounds, broken homes, a tough community. This is a place where they get to come and be sir and madam. Not because they've earned it, not because they've got titles and privilege and seniority and qualifications, but because she and that staff believe in them that they have a god divine purpose and he has a plan for their lives and then she asked him a profound question about well what have you done today that you're proud of and they're used to this type of question so he was quite happy and you could see him growing you could see him really shining with a sense of what he'd achieved that day and just as he began to say this she started clicking her fingers like this just kept going and I thought to myself, my goodness, that's rude. I know we're up against the clock a little bit, but that's not what you do. Somebody who's just starting to shine. But the more she did it, the more he shone, the more he was proud of what he'd done that day. And then we moved on. She said afterwards, I ought to explain to you, she said, we all have a culture here. When we see or hear someone doing something good, rather than interrupting them to say, well done, that's great, or saying it to them afterwards, as they're doing it, we just all click our fingers. And I saw it countless times, and it was a simple but effective way to encourage people and give them a sense of what they're capable of. I, I think that is, for me, an outpost of God's kingdom. That's a place where we're seeing the gospel alive and flourishing and modelled and restoration of broken hearts and broken souls taking place. And maybe, just maybe, if we want to experience that, we need to go to the margins more to see that. So how do we do this? Maybe it is something about embracing brokenness. There's a phenomenal Japanese pottery. What would you or I do if we break a vase or bowl? Um, it was a wedding present. It was a present from my wife to me. And um, I hide it and wait till she's gone out and do my best with the super glue to get it back together again and hope she'll never notice. And, you know, sprinkle it with a bit of that dust that's hanging around the house and hope that that would just disguise a multitude of sins. And then one day she discovers it. What happened to this? Oh, my goodness. Our two boys, they thought they'd get away with that, wouldn't they? Anyway, no, what the Japanese will do is they'll take a broken pot or vase... Maybe it's because the, the monkey managed to get the treats out by breaking it. No, what they do is they take this, they get some glue, and they mix it with gold dust. 
and they produce a paste that's not trying to be invisible superglue, but is going to be very visible. They glue this pot or vase back together again with very visible but very beautiful joins. And this Japanese pottery, if you're, you're Japanese or can speak Japanese, you're about to cringe, is called kintsugi. It's beautiful. The cracks, the breaks are very visible, but are even more beautiful than the pot or the vase itself. And together, there's something incredible. And maybe when Jesus writes the new chapter of our story, there's something very beautiful about the scars that he's healed in an incredibly beautiful way. And the end result is something far greater, that our restored souls, our restored hearts are something much more because of that. Do look up that pottery, Japanese pottery, gold joined. You'll find it. The images are incredible. And it struck me, what, what would it look like? What does it look like to really be restored? Um, we were singing earlier, in royal robes, I don't deserve. And I just had this picture of the most marginalised, the most broken, the people that the saints have served over the years in these royal robes. We might think, and we might, when we humble ourselves, have a sense that, it will look out of place. It will look wrong. The, the, uh, the mansion that Jesus is preparing for us um, will feel out of place. You know, it just, these palaces to be in the throne room of God will just, but no, if you've ever traveled and stayed with someone who's made you feel so welcome that that's felt like home, that's what it'll feel like. And these royal robes that get, we get to put on, the most marginalised put on, won't be in any way ill-fitting. They'll be perfect. And they'll be just right. And everything about all of that will be exactly as God intended. There was a couple of weeks ago, Dave came forward and talked about restoration. And it's not second best, he said. I feel God saying it's not make do and mend. It's not grubby. It's not an end result that's just not what God intended. It's far better than that. And that's the kind of restoration we're talking about. But how do we get there? We have to be prepared to be crucified with Christ. We have to be prepared to let go and let God take the reins of our lives and it will cost us everything we have to be prepared to just let God be in the driving seat of our lives for the sake of our hearts and souls but what could that look like I'm going to close with a story this is a true story from the truth and reconciliation uh, trials post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, this is a tough story. It's really moving. Um, if you feel you want to close your eyes and just absorb it, after I've, I've read this, I'll pray for us. Um, for me, this is what restoration of hearts, souls, 
bodies, minds, communities, countries can look like if only we do it God's way, in the way that Jesus showed us. A frail black woman rises slowly to her feet. She is something over 70 years old, facing across the courtroom are several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr. Van der Broek, has just been tried and found implicated in the murders of both this woman's son and her husband some years earlier. He'd come to the woman's home when he took her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then set the young man's body on fire while he and his officers parted nearby. Several years later, Van der Broek and his officers returned and took away her husband as well. For many months, she heard nothing of his whereabouts. Then almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Van der Broek came back to fetch the woman herself. How vividly she remembers that evening, going to the place beside the river where she was shown her husband, bound and beaten, but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as the officers poured petrol over his body and set him on fire were, Father, forgive them. Now the woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Van der Broek, a member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, turns to her and asks her, so, what is it you want? How should justice be done? I want three things, she said. Calmly and confidently. First, I want to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses and then continues... My husband and my son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Van der Broek to become my son. I'd like him to come twice a month to my township and spend the day with me so I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. This is also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Van der Broek in my arms, embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants come over to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Van der Broek, overwhelmed by what he's just heard, faints. And as he does, those in the courtroom, family, friends, neighbours, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, began to sing, softly but assuredly, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.